The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. We are so excited for this morning. This is um, one of our highlights of the year. I've been here coming up on three years, and this is one of those Sundays that uh, I look forward to every year. And um, we see many new faces with us this morning, and we're so glad you're here to, to celebrate, really, uh, one of the highlights of our year in, in baptism and seeing those who have come to Christ to testify of that. And so this is really a, a wonderful morning. This is Baptism Sunday, and what a joy to be able to gather together to hear the wonderful testimonies of God's grace. I don't know about you, but I never tire of hearing of testimonies. Do you? I never tire of hearing how someone has come to Christ. In one sense, they're all the same, and in another sense, they're all different. They're all the same in that they all testify of being lost in sin, without any hope, living a life of rebellion against God, and then coming under conviction of that sin coming to a point where they see Christ as a wonderful Savior, coming to Christ and repenting of their sins and being saved and having a new life in Christ. And so in that sense, they're all the same. And yet in another sense, they're all completely different. God uses unique circumstances and unique people and different situations to bring people to Christ. And so they're all different. And so we never tire of hearing of testimonies of God's grace. This morning, we get to hear 15, 15 people who have proclaimed Christ. We're going to be here till 4 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> it is amazing to see how God has done a work in these hearts. And um, I've heard their testimonies, and I've sat with men and listened to them. And um, I can't wait for you to hear them and then for you to see them uh, be baptized here in a short time. And so... We're going to do that. We're going to hear their testimonies in a little while, and then we'll all go down to the pond and we'll see them baptized. But before we do that, I want to kind of set the stage and I want to lay the spiritual foundation, the biblical principles for what's actually taking place here today. There's so much more at stake than just some people getting wet. The thing I love about this morning and testimonies and baptisms is that God is the one audience who gets all the glory. God is the one who's on display here. God is the one who is demonstrating His grace to these people. Romans 2 verse 4 says, It is the kindness of God that has led you to repentance. And so the 15 people that will be up here in a short time are going to testify of the kindness of God that has brought them to repentance, brought them to salvation, and now desire to be obedient to baptism. I have to be honest with you, on behalf of some of these people, they came and they said, I'm a little nervous. There's a lot of people out there, and they're all going to be looking at me. And I said, yep, they are. And most of them are friendly. Most of them. (laughs) But what we talked about is the fact that they're not here to impress you. They're not here to make you laugh. They're not here to entertain you. They're not here to make you feel good. They're not here to, in any way, entertain any of us. They're here 
to talk about God's grace. And they're here to testify of the mercy and the kindness and the compassion and the glory of Christ that they have found in salvation. If you are here this morning and you have already been baptized by believer's baptism, then uh, I hope this morning is a morning of rejoicing for you as well. That if you've been baptized by immersion, that this would be a morning in which you reflect back upon your own salvation. And you reflect back upon what God has done in graciously drawing you to himself. And what God has done in giving you hope. And that you would rejoice in your own baptism as you reflect back on the day you were obedient to this command. I know for me, as I think back 14 years, it was a dimly lit auditorium in a school in Spokane, Washington. And there were a thousand people out in the audience and I couldn't see any of them. But I just remember the joy that flooded my heart as I got to stand and testify of God's grace And that moment is still a great moment for me as I reflect upon that. And if you've been baptized, then let this morning be one of those mornings where you celebrate God's grace in your life. And if you are of those 15 this morning that are going to be baptized, then what we talk about here for a few minutes, let it be a a stage that prepares you for what's going to take place in just a few moments. We're going to talk about the spiritual implications of what you are about to do. And let this be a time where you consider what is actually taking place in your baptism. As I said, there's much more than you just getting wet and cold. By the way, in Russia, when someone comes to Christ in February, they break the ice. So no complaining from any of you. I want you to think this morning about the spiritual realities of your baptism that you are about to experience this morning. As you go down under that water, and I'm going to hold you down for a little while so it sinks in, that you were once dead, and that has died, and you are now alive in Christ as you come up out of the water. There are some of you here this morning who have never been obedient to believer's baptism. You may have been sprinkled as an infant or you may have not even really considered this to be a very important step. And for whatever reasons, you've never come to a point in your life where you've been obedient to baptism by immersion. And if you're in that camp this morning, uh, I want to be a burr under your saddle. And I want to compel you to come to the conviction based on God's word that it is one of the first steps of obedience for a true believer in Christ. And if you've not been baptized, and you're not going to do that this morning, and you come to a point of conviction and you say, I I need to do this, we'll do it next week. All right? And we'll do it until everyone has been obedient to that and you've come to that conviction on your own. So this is a great morning. What is believer's baptism all about? What is this all about? What is this symbol of baptism that we celebrate this morning? And I want to begin by saying that's really what baptism is. It is a symbol. It is an outward reality, an outward expression of an inward reality. It is an outward symbol of what has taken place in someone's life. Much like your wedding ring. If you are married, you have a wedding ring. And that wedding ring symbolizes that you are married. 
It doesn't make you married, but it symbolizes the fact that you are married. In fact, if you take it off, it doesn't make you unmarried, right? It's not unmarried, married. Unmarried, married. It's a symbol. It's a symbol that shows that you are married. And that's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't make someone a Christian, but it's a symbol of someone who has been saved, of someone who has come to Christ and been forgiven of their sins, and Christ is their Lord and Savior. In the New Testament times, those who were saved were often immediately baptized. In fact, there's a close link in Scripture between baptism and salvation. In fact, in the New Testament, oftentimes those who are Christians were called the baptized ones. They were called Christians, but they were also called the baptized ones because baptism was so closely associated with salvation. In Ephesians 4, verse 5, Paul writes, he says, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And what he's saying is there's one Lord, one faith, one salvation. That's how closely salvation and baptism are linked in the scriptures. And the reason for that is because baptism is one of the first steps of obedience for a person when they come to Christ. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. You're familiar with these verses. The Great Commission says to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And how do you know if they're disciples It says you then go and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is closely associated with salvation. And we see this in the early church. Acts 2 verse 38. Peter says to them, repent each one of you and be baptized. And it says just a few verses later that that day 3,000 souls came to Christ and were baptized. The link in scripture is salvation followed by baptism. In the text I just read a little while ago in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian, once the gospel became clear to him through the help of Philip, he said, hey, look, there's water. Let's do this now. In Acts chapter 16, Lydia, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to the things spoken by Paul, and she became a believer in Christ. And it said that she then became baptized with her whole household. The first converts in Europe were saved and then immediately baptized. In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, same thing. He hears the gospel, he comes to Christ, and that very hour he was baptized. And so there's this clear link between salvation and baptism, believer's baptism in the scriptures. Its importance is seen in the fact that it's only one of two ordinances that remain for us in the church today. In the Old Testament, there were many sacraments, many ordinances, many festivals like circumcision and sacrifices and Passover and the Day of Atonement, and the Sabbath, and all kinds of festivals and celebrations. But today in the church, there's only two. And these are all to serve as reminders. In the Old Testament, those festivals were to serve as reminders. And when we come to today in the church, these two, the Lord's Supper and baptism, are to serve as reminders. The Lord's Supper as a 
ongoing reminder of what God has done through Christ and baptism as a one-time reminder for each person who comes to Christ. So baptism is a wonderful symbol of what has taken place in the life of someone who has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, listen carefully, the mode matters. Here at Maranatha, we practice believers' baptism. Baptism by immersion. There will be some who say, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if you've been sprinkled or you've had water dabbed on you or you've had water sprayed on you or something. It doesn't really matter the mode, but it does. And I want to take just a moment, just quickly, these are not in your notes, but just three reasons why the biblical mode of baptism is by immersion. Let me give you one reason. First, it's the meaning of the word. The meaning of the word baptizo or baptism means to immerse. Our word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo or bapto, which means to submerge or to immerse or to dip down completely or in some cases to drown. Okay, don't worry. We're not going to do that today. We'll get you up, I promise. But it means to dip completely under the water, to immerse completely, to put under in such a way that it's completely encovered and encased by the water. This was a word that was used in the New Testament times of dyeing garments. And so when someone would want to make something, they would take their piece of fabric or their cloth and they would dip it in a dye to color it a certain color. And they actually used the word baptized. They baptized that fabric, and meaning they dipped it all the way completely in. That's the word baptize. And so when it's used in Scripture, when it's used in the New Testament specifically to refer to baptism, it actually means to immerse, to put down under, to completely cover with water. And so the word itself means to dip or to submerge or to immerse. John Calvin says that it means to baptize, means to immerse. That was certainly the practice of the early church. Even Martin Luther, who still held to infant baptism, said the term baptism is a Greek term. It may be rendered dipping when we dip something in the water that it may be entirely covered with water. So it means to completely submerge, and that's why we practice believers' baptism here. Number two, there's a second reason why we practice it. It's because every example of baptism in the New Testament is by immersion. There's no example in Scripture of water being dabbed or sprinkled or poured on anyone and that being called a baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, speaking of John the Baptist, it says they were going out to him in the Jordan River to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. Meaning to go into the water, to go into the river to be baptized. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16, speaking of Christ's baptism, it says that after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately out of the water. He was in the water, completely submerged, and he came up out of it. In John 3.23, it says of John the Baptist that he was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And he was baptizing because there was much water there because he needed to completely submerge and immerse. So we practice believers' baptism, number one, because of what the word means, number two, because of the examples that we see in Scripture, and number three, because immersion fits the symbolism that baptism intends to communicate. 
immersion fits the symbolism that baptism intends to communicate. And we're going to take a few moments to explain this. Because at salvation, a believer, someone in Christ, is now united with Christ's death and is united with Christ's resurrection. They become one with Christ and Christ lives in and dwells in them. And so as they go down in the water, it is symbolic of their old life passing away. And as they come up out of the water, it is symbolic of new life in Christ. And that, for that reason, only immersion fits the symbolism that baptism intends to communicate. And so for a few moments this morning, I want to um, explain that last one a little bit further, just for a couple moments. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is one of those passages that explains for us the spiritual realities behind believers' baptism. Colossians 2, starting in verse 9 through verse 14. And let me just read the text. It says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In those verses, there are three spiritual realities that believers' baptism communicates. I just want to explain these to you before we hear the testimonies. First, number one, baptism symbolizes completeness in Christ. Baptism symbolizes completeness in Christ. Look at verse 10. Paul writes, he says, In him you have been made complete. Maybe your version says full. You have been made full. You have brought, been brought to a place of being complete in Christ. And that is a wonderful description of all who are in Christ, who are Christians, who are saved. They are complete. They have been made full. And the implication is that before coming to Christ, all of us were not full. All of us were not complete. Mentally, we were not complete because we didn't know the full truth about God. And spiritually, we were not complete because we were out of fellowship with God. Morally, we were incomplete because we were in sin, in rebellion to God. So in every way, we were not complete apart from Christ. But the good news is, Paul says, in Him, in Christ, now that you are in Christ, you have been made complete. And the verb tense here is past action with abiding results. You have been made complete at the point of your salvation. And that continues today and will continue forever until you see Christ. We are made complete. You say, how? 
Look at the end of verse 11, or verse 11 the whole. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We all know that in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Not primarily for hygiene reasons, but for a symbol of the covenant God made with Abraham. It was a symbol God gave his people to show that at the very core of their being, at the very place in which life is reproduced, you need spiritual cleansing. You need forgiveness. That was the purpose of circumcision. Now in the New Testament, this verse says, in Christ, you have received a circumcision. Not physical, but spiritual. And your heart has been circumcised. A circumcision made, as verse 11 says, not with hands, but with Christ, who has circumcised your heart and made you a new person. How has he done that? Look at the verse 11. It says he's removed the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So when you come to Christ, your heart is circumcised, it's cleansed, and that body of flesh, that sinful component of you and I that it rebels against God is removed it's taken away Romans 6 6 says that our body of sin is done away with so that we are no longer slaves to sin isn't that good news I love the hymn and can it be in the third stanza you've Heard it before. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And that is what Paul says in verse 11. You are now complete in Christ. The chains have been removed. The body of flesh has been removed by the circumcision of your heart in Christ. And that is what baptism pictures. And so for those of you who are being baptized this morning, remember that as you stand in those waters and you give your testimony today, you are saying, my life is now complete because of Christ and his finished work on my behalf. Number two, there's a second spiritual principle that believer's baptism illustrates, and that is that baptism symbolizes union with Christ. It symbolizes union with Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism symbolizes union with Christ in two ways. First, letter A, it symbolizes union with Christ's death. Union with Christ's death. Verse 12 begins by saying that those who receive Christ are buried with him in baptism. This baptism that's speaking of here is not water baptism, it's spiritual baptism. It's being identified with Christ at the moment of your salvation with him, but that's what water baptism symbolizes. And there's a very key word in verse 12, it's with. 
You have been buried with him. You are in Christ if you are a believer. And you have been buried with him such that you have become united with him. You die the death that Christ dies. And when he died, he died our death. That means that our old person is done away with. Our old person is no longer what it once used to be. And I have to confess, at this point, I don't really get it. Because what Paul is saying here is that 2,000 years ago, when Christ was nailed to the cross, and he cried out those words, It is finished. And he breathed his last And he died and he was placed in the grave. Somehow, in a way I don't understand, all who are in Christ died with him. He died the death that we should have died. Our old sinful nature died when Christ died. And so in some miraculous, amazing, profound way, all who are in Christ are taken back to that moment when Christ died and we are united with his death. And that's why Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. Who's that I? That's his old self. That's his old nature. That's his old rebellious person. And then he says, but now I live in the flesh and I live that by faith. What's that I? That's the new I, the new person in Christ. So Paul says in verse 12, you've been buried with him in baptism. And so for those of you who are here this morning and you have been baptized, remember that you also have died with Christ. And for those of you who are here this morning who will be baptized, remember as you go under that water, it is symbolic of the fact that you are dead. Your old life has passed away. That old sinful nature has been removed from you. And that's why we can rejoice. Not only do we celebrate union with Christ's death, though, we also celebrate union with his resurrection, letter B. We have union with Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 12. Again, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And again, we come to this and we say, I don't really get this. Because 2,000 years ago, Christ rose from the dead. The power of God raised his son from the dead. And what Paul says here is that if you are in Christ, the same thing happens spiritually. You are raised up with him. You are identified with him such that his new life becomes your new life. We become clothed with him. We put Christ We are immersed into him such that his new life becomes our new life. We get to have newness of life so that we are now hidden with God in Christ. The people today who will stand up here and give their testimonies and then be baptized are essentially saying, I have died with Christ. 
And I have been raised up with him to new life. And I'm a new person. My my life now since becoming a believer is completely and entirely different than what it once was. Sin is no longer my master. And I want everyone to know that I am a new person from the inside out because of Christ. And so that's what we're celebrating as we celebrate baptisms. Number three, let me give you the final spiritual reality that comes from believer's baptism. Baptism symbolizes forgiveness of Christ. It symbolizes forgiveness of Christ. And this is really where it, where it all culminates. This is so amazing. Look at verses 13 and 14. When you were dead... In your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We could spend all day, and this is, this is amazing. Look what he says. You were dead. Do, do you realize, listen, do you realize your condition apart from Christ? You're dead. If you're here today and you, you don't know Christ, you may be very much physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. And for those who have come to Christ, before you came to Christ, before I came to Christ, we were all spiritually dead. We were zombies. You know what a zombie is? It's the walking dead. That was us. We were physically alive, but had no spiritual life in us. That's what he says in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you're dead spiritually. I was dead apart from Christ. So how does something that's spiritually dead get to have a relationship with a God who's very much alive? God has to do the work. As a pastor, I've been to many funerals. And you know what? Never once has the person in the casket gotten up and walked home. There's no life in them. That's us apart from Christ. But read on. Look at the good news. When you were dead, it was in that state when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that He made you alive together with Him. Isn't that good? He performed spiritual CPR. He put new life in your lungs. He gave you breath of fresh air so that life could now pulse through your veins and give you hope. Who did that? God did that. I love Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. You know it well. It says the same thing. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But... 
God. Being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen? That is the good news of the gospel. God initiates the process of salvation because that which is spiritually dead cannot become spiritually alive apart from God intervening in their hearts. And when He does, He makes them into completely new creatures. You see, how does He do that? Look at the end of verse 13. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. The word having is a participle that explains the main verb, made you alive. How does God make someone alive? He does it by taking away our sins. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Why does he do that? Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. Have you ever been in debt? Have you ever really been in debt? Have you been so in debt up to your eyeballs that you can't pay anything? Some of you are going north and south. You know what that's like. It's a hopeless feeling, isn't it? Maybe some of you have had someone help you pay that debt off. And you know the amazing feeling of having that burden lifted. That's just a little, teeny, tiny, little bit about what it's like to be in debt to God. We were so in debt to God, up to our eyeballs, because of our sin, that we had no way out. We had absolutely no resources to pay the spiritual debt. It was an infinite debt. And none of us could pay that debt. In fact, you want to know how bad this condition was for you and I? Look at verse 14. There was a certificate of debt that consisted of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. A certificate, a chirographon, Cairo hand graphon writing. This is a handwritten note that says, I owe you. This was written by us to God saying, we have a debt and we owe you. The problem is we can't pay the debt. Sin had written the charges against us and it was filed with the judge of heaven and earth and we were all in a place where we were so in debt we had no hope. This decree was hostile to us, verse 14 says, and it was against us. We were all rendered guilty and without any ability to pay this debt. But there's good news. God canceled it. He, he wiped it away. He, he took it out of the way. How did he do it? Did he just tear it up and say, oh, it's okay, no big deal. We'll just pretend that it wasn't there. No. Look what he did, verse 14. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's how it's removed. God, in his grace, 
nailed your IOU to the cross. As Christ was nailed to the cross, he paid a debt he did not owe because we had a debt we could not pay. And friends, that is the good news of the gospel because stamped on the heart of every believer are the words paid in full because of Christ. And today as we celebrate baptism, that's what we're celebrating People who stand before you saying, I was once lost in sin, am alive in Christ, having the certificate of debt canceled out against me so that I now have a new life. So if you've been baptized today, rejoice in your own baptism and salvation. And if you're here today and you are being baptized, remember what is actually taking place in your baptism And if you've never been baptized or if you don't know Christ, we would invite you to to come to Christ and and know the joy of forgiveness of sin and having that certificate of debt canceled and then the joy of being baptized to testify to all of what has actually taken place in your life. One writer says of believer's baptism, it is a public testimony of one's union with Christ. This act symbolizes a believer's identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The act is a solemn reminder to the individual and to all who observe, there is no turning back. And today, that's what we celebrate. Lives who've been changed by Christ to the point where they say, there is no turning back. Christ is my Lord. Christ is my Savior. And I have hope. That's what baptism is about. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.